Sometimes in life you get asked a question that sweeps you off your feet. Uh, When I was in college ministry at UK, my first semester on campus, I didn't really know anyone. And so I asked my director at the time, Travis Stevens, who some of you might know, he's a pastor at Covenant in Richmond. I asked him, hey, hey, what's the best way to meet students? And he said, we do a lot of ministry with fraternity guys, and they play intramural flag football on Tuesday nights from 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I was like, I don't know if I want to meet students that bad. I mean, I want to meet students, but I don't know if I want to be there from 7 to 11 on a Tuesday night every, every week. And it was rough as it sounds. Um, I would go out there, and I would stand for hours, and I'd watch these guys acting like they were playing for the SEC championship. Eventually, just to make it a little bit less awkward, I started taking Gatorade um, to them until one of the teams started calling me the team mom and asking when I was going to bring orange slices at halftime. But all that awkwardness uh, started leading somewhere. Uh, There was one guy halfway through the semester that eventually asked me, hey, why do you keep coming out here each week? And I told him, I'm a Christian, I work for a college ministry, Jesus has loved me, and I want to share that love with students. And I honestly expected him to laugh, and he wanted to get lunch. And over lunch, he asked me a question that I want to ask you this morning. He asked me, So what's so amazing about being a Christian? What's so amazing about this Christian life? And it's one of those questions that you dream about as a minister that when you actually receive it, you don't know what to do with. Um, I froze up, and I I tried to think back this week of what I told him, and I don't remember what I told him. But I do know what I would have done now. I do know what I would have told him now. After reading this passage, I would have taken him to a Christian funeral. In the past few months, we've celebrated and grieved the lives of some precious saints at our church. And when you sit at their funeral and you hear about their life and you hear about all that Christ has done in them and through them and for them, even in the midst of the sadness and the grief, you can't help but leave amazed. Our passage this morning, as we get back into Philippians, Paul is dealing with some false teaching at the church. And and as we get into this passage, you're going to notice that he counteracts their teaching, not just with theology, but with his testimony. He counteracts their false teaching with how amazing the Christian life is. So what's so amazing about Christianity? Three answers to that question from Philippians 3 this morning. We're going to look at the problem that Christianity solves, the person that Christianity gives, and the participation that Christianity offers. Starting starting in one, what is the problem that Christianity solves? What's the problem that Paul is addressing at Philippi? Look back at verse one. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, which is the theme of Philippians. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And now notice, as we get into verse two, how much Paul's tone and language completely change. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul goes from rejoice in the Lord to look out for the dogs. He adopts a very controversial language here to show us that something crucial is happening and that something crucial is very, very dangerous to our souls. There's no greater insult in the Jewish culture than to call someone a dog. You see, in those times, dogs were not these beloved animals like they are today. They were unclean. 
They were despised. And it was the word that the Jewish culture used for non-believing Gentiles that were outside the fold because they were considered unclean. And now Paul is using their insult against them. He's calling this Jewish group dogs. He's calling them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. So what's going on here? Why such harsh language from the Apostle Paul? Well, there's a group in the church known as the Judaizers. You see them here. You see them in the book of Galatians. You see them in other places in the New Testament. But it's this group who were spreading this false teaching. And you can see from Paul's language in the text what that false teaching is. Look at verse 3. Paul says, speaking about Christians, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and this is the key, and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, the Judaizers, instead of putting their confidence in Christ alone, has started to add something. It was not enough to trust in Christ. You had to trust in Christ and be circumcised. That was the Jewish custom. So the Gentiles in the church that were coming into the church were told, for you to truly be a Christian, for you to truly be like one of us, you must be circumcised. And Paul is fired up about this. In fact, this teaching is what makes him the most angry throughout the entire New Testament. You see that here. You see that in the book of Galatians. Why? Why does Paul get the most angry about this? Because Paul knows that when you add to Christ, you always subtract from him. When you add to Christ, you replace how amazing Christianity is with something that you now must achieve, which you can't. Paul knows that this false teaching is heaping on burdens that no one can carry. And he knows this because he's done it too. Look at verse 4. Paul challenges their false teaching with his testimony. Paul says, do you want to play that game? Do you want to play the resume game? Do you want to start adding up works? Do you want to start putting confidence in what you can do? Look at my resume. You want to talk about circumcision? I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the right day in the law. You want to talk about being a Jew? I'm pure-blooded from the people of Israel. In fact, I come from the tribe of Benjamin. If you don't remember, that's the tribe that birthed the first king Saul, which is probably where Paul got his original name. You want to talk about the good works? You want to talk about the law? I was a Pharisee, which is the strictest participants in the law, the strictest people of the law. And he didn't just study it. He says, I was zealous for it. I persecuted the church for what I thought was their blasphemy. As to righteousness under the law, Paul says, I was blameless. As much as you could be blameless under the law, Paul says, I checked all those boxes. Paul was the best at doing works until he met Jesus. Until he met Jesus and he saw what real righteousness actually looked like. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, something strange happened. All the works that he'd been doing, that he'd been building his life on, that he'd been building his worth into, suddenly became worthless in the eyes of God. Paul calls them rubbish, which is in the Greek dung or excrement. Why does Paul use that language? Because if we could earn our way to salvation, why would Jesus even have to come? That's Paul's point 
if he could earn his salvation, if he could do all these works, there would be no reason for Jesus to even come. And Paul's language here is bold because he's pointing out mankind's biggest problem. There is no bigger question for your life than how can I be right with God? And if you're not a Christian in here, we're so glad you're here. You might say, hey, I don't really care about being right with God. But don't you want to be right with something? Isn't your heart constantly striving to be right with something? The restlessness constantly looking to find your rest in something? That's because in the human heart, there is this gap. This gap between who you are and who you ought to be. And that gap grows and grows and grows, constantly striving to be closed. I'm guessing no one in here this morning is trying to close that gap with circumcision. I bet that's a safe bet for us this morning. But you fill that gap with something, don't you? In her book, Never Enough, author Jennifer Wallace tells us about this study done in the 1990s by Yale researcher Senya Luther. And Dr. Luther studied the lives of American teenagers, particularly trying to figure out at-risk teenagers. That's what she wanted to study. So she put together the study in the 90s through Yale that followed a group of teens whose lives were impacted by poverty, crime, substance abuse, kind of things that we think of when we think about at-risk youth. And so she needed a control group. She was studying kind of the impoverished community. She needed a control group to compare her findings with. So she picked a nearby affluent community. And she tracked the same variables in both. She was looking for rates of depression, rule-breaking, use of drugs and alcohol. And to everyone's surprise, when the study came out, the affluent community came out much worse than the poor community. Across the board, the teenagers in the affluent community were more likely to use alcohol. They were more likely to be addicted to hard drugs. And they were suffering from much higher rates of clinical depression and anxiety. And at first, there's a lot of pushback on this study. Something had to go wrong. They could not believe the results. But as they continued their research, more and more results came back the exact same way. And now Luther and other scientists have discovered that what places a child at risk, what places a child at risk for high levels of clinical anxiety, depression, substance abuse, is not growing up in an upper-class home or a lower-class home. That's not the main factor. The main factor is how much pressure that community puts on them. And this is super important for our kids. The main factor is which community is putting a constant pressure on those kids to achieve. That's what did the most damage. The pressure to achieve was crushing these students. One high school teenager said in the study, we live in a community where your grades, how you look, your weight, where you travel, what your house looks like. Everything has to be the best, to be perfect, and to look effortless. And I feel like it's killing me. Does that sound familiar? It sounds so familiar to us because this is not just a problem of the Philippian church. This is the problem of the human heart. In the Philippian church, there was so much religious pressure to achieve. You must be circumcised to be accepted. And you know it all too well, but there's so much pressure in our culture to achieve too. There's so much pressure to achieve from our paychecks to our parenting, from our relationships to our religious practices. 
Everything is telling us you have to achieve in order to earn your righteousness. And this is why Paul says, look out for this. In some other translations, it says, beware of this. And you really need to, too. Because there's nothing more burdensome to your life or dangerous to your soul than self-justification. There's nothing more dangerous than feeling like you have to earn your life. For you to try to fill that infinite gap between you and God with works of your own because you can't do it. That's why it's exhausting and empty and we never feel like we're enough. Even though our culture tells us if you just do enough, then you'll finally have enough, then you'll finally be enough. We never get to enough. But like Paul says, and like he found out when he met Jesus, all that stuff is never enough because only Jesus is enough. And that's point two. Let's look at that next. We've seen the problem that Christianity answers. Now let's look at the person that Christianity gives. Look back at verse seven. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had a really impressive life. Why would he want to give all that up? He wanted to give all that up because he gained Christ. And look how he describes that gaining of Christ. Verse 9 that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And that verse there is what separates Christianity from everything else. That verse there separates Christianity from everything in this world and what it tells you. Every, every other religion, every other value system, every other philosophy Everything else in this world says, how do you get to righteousness? How do you finally come to that place of enough? You and your performance. You and your achievement. But notice what Paul says. Paul says that he was accepted, that he was declared righteous, not from his own righteousness, but a righteousness that came from God. Paul was found in him, and so he was willing to give up everything else. What's so amazing about the Christian life? In Christianity, you do not get another performance. You get a person. You get a person who performed on your behalf. You see, Paul discovered that Christianity is not just another addition to your life. It's actually an exchange for your life. And he shows that exchange in two words. And all the wonders of Christianity are found in these two words. In Christ. Those are the words that Paul uses over and over again in the New Testament to describe what it means to actually be a Christian. His righteousness did not come from his own, but faith in Christ. Theologians call this union with Christ. And this is the most crucial truth in the New Testament. And I hope it's the most crucial truth for you this morning. That truth changed the Apostle Paul and has changed so many people throughout history. None more famous probably than Martin Luther. Martin Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation. If you don't know Martin Luther, he was a German monk in the 1500s, and he was rising the ranks of the Catholic Church, becoming a priest, studying the Bible, teaching. He wanted to climb that ladder up and up and up. And he, and he like many of us, during that whole time, was struggling with that gap, 
that gap between who he was and who the Bible said he ought to be. He wanted to be righteous. There was just one problem. He couldn't stop sinning. No matter how hard he tried, no matter what he did, it was never enough. And he read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible. And although he was a priest, he secretly hated it. And here's what he hated the most. He hated the words, righteousness of God. Because every time he read those words, he was reminded that God is righteous and he is not. And he was terrified of God and hated him at the same time. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I've been fearful of God, but yet hated him at the same time because of this ever-growing gap in my heart. But one night when he was reading Romans 1, the Holy Spirit opened up his heart, and he realized that the righteousness of God is not something he had to achieve. It was something that was given to him in Christ. It's the same thing that Paul says here in Philippians 3. The righteousness of God was not something that he had to earn, but something that Christ earned for him. And from that day forward, Martin Luther loved to tell the story of Christianity less like a resume, less like a performance, and more like a marriage. Here's how he would tell it. He would say there once was a prostitute, a harlot in the city, who had dreams of being a queen. That's all that she ever wanted. Her biggest hopes was being the queen. But she knows she couldn't be a queen. Everyone knew that a harlot can't be a queen. Even if she stopped her behavior, even if she cleaned herself up, even if she decided to start doing good and and walk away from her old life, nothing she can do will make her the queen unless the king calls her mine. That's exactly what the king did. The king loved the harlot and he asked her to marry him. And Martin Luther says that in those marriage vows is what it means to be a Christian, to be united to Christ which is why when we go to a wedding ceremony and we hear the vows, our heart leaps because we know that's what we're made for. In those vows, the harlot looks at the king, and you know the vows. The harlot says, all that I am and all that I have, I now give to you. What does a prostitute have to give to a king? Shame, dishonor, Guilt, regret, debts, addiction. But in that moment, she gives it all to him, and he takes it. And it's not over, because the king has something to say to her too. He repeats those same vows. All that I am, all that I have, I now give to you. And what does a king have to give to a prostitute? His status, his riches, his privileges, his glory, his royalty, his blessings, In that moment, and make the connections to Christianity, in that moment, whether she feels like it or not, or she acts like it or not, she is no longer a prostitute. She's a queen. Not because of anything she's done, but because the king said, you're mine. On the cross, Jesus looked at you, and he really did look at you all the way through. He saw your past. He saw your guilt. He saw your shame. Even the things that you can't bear to look at, he looked at and he said, mine. On the cross, Jesus said, mine, taking our guilt, the wrath deserving from God, our sin, our unrighteousness, and he takes it all upon himself. And not only that, he gives us what is his. Not just forgiving us of our sin, but he gives us his record. His life, his glory, his status, everything that you need to finally be with God, he gives to you. And even though you don't feel like it right now, 
even though you haven't lived like it, even though in your heart you still feel like you're a wicked sinner, you are now declared righteous in God's sight when you trust in Christ alone. All that striving in your heart can finally rest upon him alone because he's done it. This is why many refer to the cross as the great exchange. Because in Christ, Jesus does not just take our life, our sin, and forgives us, but he gives us his life. So what does that life actually look like? Let's finish there now. We've seen the problem that Christianity answers. We've seen the person that Christianity gives. Now let's finish by looking at the participation that Christianity offers. What does the Christian life look now? In the same way that wedding vows are the beginning of a marriage but leads to a marriage life, what does our union with Christ now lead us to? Look at verse 10 and 11. And notice that we're not just given a person, but we're now called to participate in the life of that person. Verse 10. Paul says that I want to know him. And what does that knowing him look like? The power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And those verses might be a little challenging for us, not just because of the language, but because of the message. It challenges us on what progress actually looks like in the Christian life. So if I were to ask you before you came in here, what do you want your life to look like? What do you want your future to look like? your career, your family, your goals, your hopes, your dreams. I don't think, I could be wrong, I don't think any of our initial answers would be, I want to share in Christ's sufferings. I want to become like him in his death so that at any means possible I may attain the resurrection. I don't think that's the first thing coming out of our mouth. But that's Paul's goal, and that's Paul's goal because that's what the Christian life is. In Christianity, you are forever united to Christ, which means that Christ is not just the source of your life, but he is now the shape of your life. Your life is built on the pattern of becoming more and more about the life of Christ. So what does this mean? What Christ has done for you is now happening in you. What did Christ do for you? He died and was raised. So now what does your look like? Your life look like? It looks like death and resurrection over and over and over again, which is why we struggle, which is why we suffer, which is why this life is not easy, because for the Christian, life is death and resurrection. What this means is that when Jesus died, that's not just a past event, that is now your present reality. Please do not mistake the Christian life for everything else in this life. Please do not mistake growth and progress like the world's version of growth and progress. The Christian life is not another ladder to climb. In fact, if you view it that way, you'll be very disappointed. The Christian life isn't just more things to do, it's a person to become. That's what Paul is saying. That's why the Christian life is much harder and much more wonderful than any of us could ever imagine. Because your life now is actually getting to participate in the life of your Savior, both in his death and in his resurrection. There's a video going around social media this week that was so beautiful on this idea. It was so beautiful on this idea of participation. It was of a young man named Mason Brandstrader 
who three years ago was involved in a horrific skiing accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. So it was on January 18, 2021. And since that day, three years ago, he has done nothing but want to walk again. And he's tried everything to do it. He's tried strength training. He's tried water therapy. He's tried stretching, PT, isolation work. He's even tried a thing called neuroplasticity, which I have no clue. Maybe you could explain to me later. But something about changing your neural pathways to send different brain, different brain signals to your legs to make them start working again. And unfortunately, all that work that he'd been doing was causing his body more harm than good. It was creating nerve pain and constant spasms. Until recently... He was discouraged, but then something started to change. And it didn't change through his own performance. It actually came for participation with his dad. His dad started participating in his walking with him. So here's what they do. His dad would lift him up from his wheelchair, bearing his weight. He put a walker underneath him. And as that walker is bearing his son's weight, his dad would slip his feet underneath Mason's feet, one by one. And so when his dad took a step, Mason took a step. When his dad would move forward, Mason would move forward. And Mason miraculously was was able to walk faster and farther than he ever has before with minimal spasms and very little pain. And you know the biggest difference in Mason when you watch this video? The biggest difference from all his other training? He's not just enduring it, he's now enjoying it. His dad is behind him beaming And Mason is beaming too. How does learning how to walk again go from so much pain to so much joy? It goes to being joy when you're participating with the person who loved you and gave himself for you. In Mason's suffering, in his weakness, he is leaning on his dad. He is participating with his his dad and them sharing in that life together. They are now getting to experience a small taste of the resurrection. So do you see what Paul's saying here? Do you see what's so amazing about the Christian life? When Christianity becomes less of, of a performance of what I have to do and more of a participation in what God is doing, you can actually start enjoying it. When Christianity becomes less about what you're doing and more about what God's doing in you, you can actually start enjoying it, which is the theme of Philippians. It is the application of Philippians. Don't forget what Paul says in Philippians 3.1, we are called to rejoice in the Lord. And we can rejoice in the Lord, we can enjoy our God because we no longer have to earn our life. It has been given to us and we now get to participate in that life together. And you know what happens when you start enjoying God? Your life, although filled with suffering and loss and strife, it actually starts to expand. Your life actually starts to get bigger. This is what we feel when we read the Apostle Paul's words, don't we? When you think about the Apostle Paul and you look at his life, it is filled with so much suffering. And how do we think about suffering? We think it's always a loss, right? We think suffering always narrows our life. It makes it less. But when you read about the Apostle Paul, his losses don't make him less. They make him more. His losses don't make him less. It makes him gain life. Go back this, read and go back this week and read Philippians 3. Maybe hop over to 2 Corinthians 11 if you have the time. And read about everything that Paul was up against in this world. I'll just give you a sample. 
Just in 2 Corinthians 11, here's what he says. I face danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. All this loss and suffering to the Apostle Paul, and as you read about that, you see his soul is not shrinking, but it's growing. His soul is not shrinking in despair, but it's expanding with joy. And as you read about his life, your life starts expanding. Just from reading about it, your soul starts to grow. Why is that? Because Paul learned that the Christian life is amazing, and I hope you do too. I hope you learn, like the Apostle Paul, that although the world can take everything away from you, it cannot take away your participation with Christ. In fact, the suffering in this world caused him, caused him to press only further into his Savior. His sufferings led him further into sharing in Christ's suffering, which led him further into the power of the resurrection that comes to those sufferings. So for the Christian, what the world says will destroy us can actually work only to grow us. This is why Paul is more free in a jail cell than most people are with all the comforts in the world. This is why the Christian author Joni Erickson Tata, who's paralyzed, she has brought so much joy to people all over the world from a wheelchair. And this, is, and this is why if you ask anyone in our church, how did you get involved here? Nine out of ten times you'll hear Nate Jones. You'll hear Nate Jones because he has literally fathered a generation of Christians both here at TCPC and across the world. He's fathered a generation of Christians in Belarus and right now in Mexico, and he's never set foot on a stage. Hardly ever. How'd they do that? How is Paul free in jail? How is Joni Erickson taught a joyful in a wheelchair? How is Nate transforming the world from behind the scenes? They all know their life is not their own, but it's a participation in Christ. What's so amazing about the Christian life? In this world, everything can be taken from you, even your life, but not your life in Christ. In fact, the worst this world can bring you now just brings you closer and closer to your Savior. Everything that is lost now becomes gain because Christ is not only enough, he really is everything. And I hope you know him this morning. And I hope that your life will be a further participation more and more in his love. Let's pray. Father, this is a lot of words. These are a lot of verses. Lord, more than the words, may your promise go deep in our hearts that we have you and you are enough. Or for those that are going through extreme loss right now, would they be pressed further into you? And in the midst of extreme pain and grief, that they'd be able to share in your sufferings and it would be enough for them. Or for those that are striving, that are fighting sin, or may you shine your face upon them. May you remind them again of your righteousness and the righteousness that you've given them in Christ. And now we pray like your son has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.